Good morning. It's good to see you, church, here uh, with us today. We are in a summer series that, that we're calling The Language of Prayer. We're looking at how the Psalms are this amazing gift, right, in, this, in the middle of the Bible, this gift of the prayer book of God, uh, the, giving us, teaching us the language of prayer, because uh, all of us need to learn. Um, and last week, we looked at the Psalms of Lament, and this week, we're looking at one of what's called the penitential Psalms. There's seven of these Psalms. We've actually already used two of them this morning, Psalm 51, Psalm 130, Psalm 32 is a third, uh, and then there's several more. So let's uh, look in your Bible at Psalm 32, or you can open your bulletin to page 10. Let me pray as we go to God's Word. Father, we thank you so much that we have already heard this morning um, the good news of your mercy for us. And we heard this morning um, that you do not keep a record of our sins. Uh, We just heard the choir sing to us about being surrounded by love. Um, So we pray that you would just continue to deepen that message in our hearts and that we would hear it, believe it, and respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word, brothers and sisters, this is God's word. It is absolutely true. It is given to each of you in love. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. Surround me with songs of deliverance. And then verse 8 and 9 is the Lord sort of speaking back to us. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Back to David. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. So I read this interesting article recently, which uh, the the, the author was suggesting which movies best define um, each generation uh, in America right now. So I'm going to tell you what these are. Please don't get mad at me. I did not make these up. Okay, this is what this guy said. So first of all, for for the silent generation, which is sort of the 70 and up, he suggested the movie that's most definitive of their generation was the 1939 making of The Wizard of Oz, which is sort of a, a nodding to the future, but a nostalgia for the past. Uh, for the boomer generation, he suggested the 1976 film The Graduate uh, with Dustin Hoffman, um, and the 1980 film The Big Chill, um, which I've never seen, but was just apparently all about guys making money, right? Um, I'm going to skip over me for a second, uh, but the millennials, he suggested the Twilight series, what do y'all think? I, oh, I don't know. That's a little dubious. For the Hunger Games, he said, um, no one really understands millennials, especially this guy, I don't think. Um, but for the Gen X generation, my own, he suggested a film which I think is just spot on, uh, and that is The Breakfast Club. We have any Gen Xers in the house? Shout out for The Breakfast Club. Yeah, man. Um, so The Breakfast Club was, a, was, was the, kind of the defining 
movie of the, gen- of the children of the 80s. Um, it, was a, it was a film about a group of high school kids who were put in detention together, and each of them are playing their respective social roles. You've got the jock, uh, the nerd, the, the bad kid, the, the cool kid. Um, and one by one, they come clean. One by one, uh, they begin admitting and showing their true selves to each other and essentially saying to each other, actually, though my life might look different, I am not okay. And there was something about that message, I think something from my generation that for some reason felt like it was not permitted to say, I am not okay, that that was a liberating message to hear that instead, I am not okay. The Psalms we've seen in this sort of interesting way are giving us language to say that very thing, that things are not okay. Last week, we looked at the language of lament, and we saw Psalm 77 and how it gave us permission to grieve and cry and shake our fist at God and actually protest even, saying that things are not okay with the world. This week, we're looking at the Psalms teach us the language of confession. And if lament helped us to say things are not okay with the world, confession helps us say things are not okay with me. Things are not okay with me. And that's actually quite harder even than the first because who wants to admit that? I mean, who wants to admit that I am not the person that I'm supposed to be? I'm not the person I claim to be. I'm not the person that I pretend to be. And yet, as Breakfast Club shows, even though so much of us resist being exposed, there is also this deep longing in each of us to be known. In fact, Brene Brown, who is a well-known psychologist because of her viral TED Talks, says that what we most fear is to be exposed, and yet what we most want is to be known. And so it's like we live with this tension that we long to come out of the darkness and actually be known, but we are terrified of the light. And so we want to be known, but we also want to be loved, but we fear if that we are truly known, we will not be loved. And if we are being loved, then it must not mean that we are truly known. You see what I'm saying? That's a great tension that we all carry. And so how do we solve that tension? And the Psalms, the Psalms of, petition, of, of uh, peni- penitence offer this amazing solution because it's saying, look at verse one again with me. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. This, look at that carefully. It's so counterintuitive. It's saying blessed, that's the Hebrew word for happy, happy the happy person, the truly blessed person, the, the person who is truly living A happy, fulfilling life is the person who knows two things. First of all, they are fully known. And all of their icky stuff, all of it is known. All of their wretchedness, all of their sin. They are a transgressor before God. They are fully known. And yet, they also know that they are fully loved and without a doubt that they are forgiven. This psalm is saying the happiest person in the world is the person who is fully known, but who also is fully loved. That makes for a truly happy life. Don't you want that? That's what this psalm is inviting you to, to be known and to be loved. And Psalm 32 is giving you the language to go after that with God. I think it teaches us two things in this language. First of all, it says that if you want to speak this language of confession first, you've got to learn to boldly speak the truth of your guilt. That's being known. You've got to boldly speak the truth of your guilt and be fully known. But then second, you've got to learn to clearly hear the word of grace. And that is to be fully loved. We need both of those two things if you're going to speak the language of confession. Okay? So let's look at the first. We boldly speak the truth of our guilt. Now, I chose that word guilt intentionally because it is such an unpopular word today. 
it's actually quite strange to use the words like guilt and sin in our society. It sounds really passe. I mean, we don't, we think people don't need self-condemnation. They need self-affirmation. So, so why speak words of guilt? Even in the church, I've noticed, um, especially in the, in the sort of modern, uh, the, the modern manifestations of church, even sometimes the church is hesitant to use the words of sin and guilt. We use words like brokenness instead of sin sometimes. We use words like need instead of guilt. So why use that word? Well, somebody who I think dealt with this in our modern, the modern notions of guilt is the German author Franz Kafka. Kafka wrote a really interesting novel in the early 20th century called The Trial. Has anybody ever read The Trial? A few of you. It's a, it's a really, really, really eerie book. Great summer reading. Great for the beach. Um, but, but, so there, there's, this, there's this character named Joseph K. He's living a normal life, and suddenly he gets arrested. He's brought into trial, and he's never told his crime. And so he goes through this whole series of arraignment and evidence and jurists coming against him, and he never knows what he's guilty of, and so he's living with this sense of condemnation, and ultimately he goes to execution never actually knowing what he has been condemned for. And Kafka said that this was a parable for our own modern times. He said, we live in a society that has done away with moral absolutes, and yet we cannot shake our feelings of guilt. He says that we, we, we don't have, modern society and modern philosophy does not have the concept of sin, but yet we cannot get rid of this deep sense that there is actually something really wrong with us. Now, Kafka was not a Christian. He was a German existentialist. But he, he gets it, I think. That it's, even if you're not a Christian, even if you sort of laugh at the, the notion of moral absolutes, we all carry around the sense that there is really something wrong inside. You don't measure up. You're not the person that you're supposed to be. And we all know this deep down. There's this very dark series on HBO called True Detectives. And there's these two detectives played by Woody Harrelson, the first series, uh, True, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. And Matthew McConaughey plays this very strange uh, detective named Russ Cole. And Rust is able to elicit confessions from almost anyone. And he tells his partner that his method is rooted in human nature. This is what he says. Look, everybody knows that there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants to confess the guilty especially, and everybody's guilty. Everybody's guilty. And so I think what Rust Cole knows and what Kafka knows, Scripture makes plain, Right? It says this, look at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, unmincing words. I did not cover up my guilt, my iniquity. I will confess my transgression. Actually, the Hebrew word is even stronger than that. Rebellion. I will confess my rebellion. This is our essential problem. Friends, listen. Here's the good news. The reason you feel that something is wrong with you is because there is. You know, you're way worse than you think. Celebrate, friends. This is why you have that feeling, right? Stott, John Stott says this. Sin is essentially this. Those who are made by God and like God and for God choose to live life without God. And that's all of us. I don't care if you've been baptized when you were three months old and you've been in your church all your life. All of us are in this predicament. We are rebels against the God who made us. We do not give him the love, the, 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 the honor, and the glory that he deserves. We, we do not love and cherish and seek and desire him. We live for ourselves. And con- this is what we know deep down. We live with this knowledge that we are rebels, yet we cannot voice it. And what confession does is it gives the opportunity, like Russ Cole said, to come clean and finally to admit it. Yes, that feeling that I have is because it's true. There is something wrong with me, and I need forgiveness. Now, of course, we don't want to do this. Nobody wants to do this. In fact, the reason I love this psalm is because David describes his resistance to do this. Look at verse 3 and 4. It's really beautiful. He's actually 
giving us a window into his own wrestling and his resistance to admit his guilt. There's lots of language in here about covering up. You see that cover, will not cover up. A lot of commentators think that's a reference to Genesis 3. And if you know what happens in Genesis 3, remember that Adam and Eve, they ate from the tree in the garden. And the first thing they did, you remember? They realized that they're naked. And what do they do? You remember, kids? You remember? What do they do? They, they hide. Yeah, they jump into the bushes. They hide from, the, from God and from each other. Psychologically, we would say their objective guilt moves to subjective shame. This is what they're doing in that experience. And that's the human experience. We realize there's something wrong with us. We sense that there's something deeply off or evil in our souls. And so what do we do? Our reaction is to hide, to cover, to pretend like things are better than they are. Do you remember Shrek? Um, that, that, that great, it's really, it's, it's not just for kids. It's for adults. Shrek, remember Shrek? Remember Fiona? Remember Princess Fiona? Princess Fiona, this beautiful princess. Everyone thinks she's very lovely. But she knows this deep, deep, dark secret about herself. And that is that when it's dark, she turns into a monster. And so her entire life, her schedule, the way she manages her days, must be completely organized around hiding the deepest secret about her life. That they'll all believe she's lovely, she's actually a monster. And friends, that's me, that's, that's you. How many of you thought, if people really knew what went on in my head and what went into my heart, nobody would want anything to do with me? Y'all, seriously, if you can't admit that, I got no help for you. Why? Because like Fiona, we are all desperate to cover the truth about ourselves, right? And what does all this hiding do? Look what it does. Terrible things. Look at verse 3. My bones wasted away. Verse 4. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He's actually describing physical and physiological consequences to his resistance to confession. Actually, psychologists know that this is true. That we know now, science tells us that there's something that happens in the prefrontal cortex when you refuse to come, come to, to be transparent with something in your own life that you're hiding. We actually begin to experience mental, emotional, and even physical disintegration. And so, our hiding not only destroys your life with God, which it will, not only does it destroy your life with other people because it, basically you're living a double life, but it actually destroys you. It destroys your body. It destroys your heart, your mind. And that's why evil delights in this. It delights in shame. It delights in, in hiding. As a friend of mine puts it, the only thing that can grow in the dark is mold. Confession, though, breaks this toxic pattern. Look at verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you see his relief after all that wrestling in verse 3 and 4? He's, 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 he's struggling, he's resisting, he's, his heart is melting. And suddenly he confesses and he's free. He's put a stop to his pretending game. Confession terminates the dishonest double life. God has invited him and us to be honest about ourselves, to, to, to name what's wrong, to name our guilt, to come out of the bushes, to be known. Just like Russ Cole said, everybody wants to confess because everybody's guilty. And, and God has actually, David has done this and he's inviting us to join him. And you can see his joy. Wouldn't that be amazing? I know some of you want this. To stop hiding. Stop spinning. Stop your carefully cultivated version of yourself on Instagram. <laughs> to stop it and to name what is most true. 
You don't have to overwork. You don't have to undereat. You don't have to defend your wrongs. You don't have to do all the things you do to cover what is wrong with you. You can come clean. You can be known. That is David's invitation to us. And that is the first word in the language of confession to boldly admit your guilt. Have you done that? That's really just the basic question of this first point. Have you done that? And I don't mean, I know that a lot of you are Christians and you are happy to say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner saved by grace. What you mean, of course, is you're hypothetically a sinner, right? (laughs) Oh yeah, pastor, I'm a sinner. Y'all, let's stop that, please. Like, what God wants is you to name your actual, say you're a real sinner, to say to him, I am actually a rebel in heart. And some of you actually have to name this. Some of you might have to say to God or to another person, I am greedy. I love money more than anything. I lie, I steal, I cheat. I'm addicted to porn. I'm way too dependent on alcohol. I am vain. I'm obsessed with my appearance. I care way too much about my stuff. I'm jealous of the success of the people around me, and I, and I root for their downfall. I'm having an emotional affair with someone in my office. I'm having a, an actual physical affair with someone. Some of you need to say that. I have an anger problem. I lose it on my kids. I'm constantly manipulating other people. Some of you need to say some of those things. All of us can say, look, I love many things more than I love God. I live for myself. Even the good I do is stained with selfishness and pride. God is inviting you to come clean and name your actual real sin to him. And, and, and he's inviting you to do this, not just to shame you, but to set you free. Because everybody wants to confess. Because we're all guilty. Because that's the first thing you need to, do, to learn is to boldly speak the truth of, great, of guilt and The Psalms teach us that. And secondly, though, that's not enough. Because remember, you need to not just be known to be happy, you also need to be loved. And so we must also hear the truth, the the, the word of grace. And look at this word. Verse 1. Blessed is the person whose sin is covered. See, that's amazing. We cover ourselves, and instead, God covers us. Blessed is the person whose sin the Lord does not count against him. That's amazing. David's saying he... He he has come completely clean with all of his failures, but the Lord has determined to not count that against his final assessment. It makes me think of 10th grade chemistry. Oh, I hate to think about 10th grade chemistry. I was was taking chemistry, and in our midterm, our teacher handed all of our papers back. Every one of us got got an F. Every one of us. And I, I, I was at the point where I was like super zealous about a high GPA, and, uh, and I was just destroyed. I was demoralized. And, so, and the teacher said, boys, here's the bad news. You're terrible at chemistry. Here's the good news. I will not count this midterm on your grade. And all oh, the relief, you know, the joy, the joy of that. And David is saying that I, I am a moral and spiritual failure. And God is determined he will not count that against me. He will not. It has no bearing on my final assessment before him. And so therefore, that gives him incredible freedom to confess with joy. And if that was true for David, who looked forward to Christ, how much more for us who who look back to Jesus? In fact, Paul quotes this psalm in Romans 4 as evidence 
of his truth of justification and says that this psalm was fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, I love this, what he says in another place, which I also think he borrows from Psalm 32, 2 Corinthians 5. He said, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Listen, not counting people's sin against them. Listen to this. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reason why God, he says, the reason why God doesn't count our sin against us is not because he says it's no big deal, but because he has taken all of the consequences and the punishment and the damnation of our sin and he has given it to Jesus instead and Jesus has received it for you in love. That Jesus received what we deserve, our F, so we can receive what he deserved, his A. Jesus received our punishment so we can receive his reward. And, and, and this, is the, this is not a possible thing. This is a reality when you trust in Jesus Christ. When you say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus has done, you are forgiven permanently. Your sins are not counted against you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this changes everything when it comes to confession, right? When I was a young Christian, about 14 or 15, I used to try, I thought that basically to be a good Christian meant to be good. And so I would try to go the whole day without sinning. The whole day. And my, the key, my key strategy was avoiding my sister. You know, that was the, that was the key way. Um, and when you think about it, when you think about it, that's not surprising because if you define spiritual success by how little you sin, essentially how well you perform spiritually, then the last thing you would ever want to do is confess failure, right? Because to do so is to somehow throw your own salvation into question. Confession becomes high. This is why confession is pretty highly traumatic for religious people and why religious people can be some of the most defensive and self-righteous people in the world. Why? Because to confess and admit failure is to actually throw their own salvation into question. But for the person who understands grace, it is completely different. Confession is never traumatic. It's actually sweet. It's beautiful. Because the more you do it, the more beautiful and rich and powerful the love of God becomes. This is sort of a silly illustration, but dating, I really do think, is one of the worst inventions of the modern era. You know, dating. I plan to do arranged marriages for all of my children, and they're so excited about it. Um, but here's why dating is so horrible is because basically when you are not sure of the other person's commitment, you are always hiding the worst things about yourself, right? In fact, the more you are in love with that person, the more you have the propensity to hide. In fact, dating is basically strategic self-marketing, right? That's what it is. It's strategic self-marketing to avoid rejection. But when you enter into a true covenant relationship, let's say like a, a deeply trusting marriage, it's actually the opposite because you know the person's commitment. You know they're not going anywhere. And so the more loved and accepted you feel by them, the more free you are to admit all of your failures. And in fact, the more you admit, the more you come clean, the more precious their love becomes. And so it's actually the opposite dynamic. And this is the dynamic of the gospel that when you trust in Jesus, what he's done for you, you are married to him. You are in union with him. God is in covenant with you. And he is not going anywhere. And the more joy you take in Christ, the more joy you take in his mercy, the more free you are to drop your denials and admit your sin. And the more you do so, the more precious and beautiful his love becomes. I love Psalm 3210. It's one of my favorite verses in the world. It says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. What a beautiful image. I love that image. Before I define my life by my goodness, now I define it by love. Before I define my life by my performance, now I know I am surrounded by the love of God. In fact, sometimes, I, I sort of hesitate to tell you this because it's sort of silly, but sometimes I actually imagine the love of God around me like a, a love force field. <laughs> Sorry, no, that's really weird. But like, seriously, like a love force field. And so like when somebody criticizes me, I'm just like, cool, I'm loved by God. And if somebody tells me I'm awesome, I say, you don't even know the half of it, <laughs> right? Because, right? Because it's true. The love of God surrounds us, which means we are completely known and completely loved. And that is the recipe for a happy life, is it not? So this is how we speak the language of confession. We boldly speak the truth of guilt, and we clearly hear the word of grace. Now, let me, let me uh, just offer you two applications. Okay, first of all, I think that if you're a Christian, you should try to make a regular habit of self-examination. This is kind of an old Puritan thing, but I actually think it's really important. I think the wisest people that I have ever known in my life are people who know themselves. In fact, John Calvin said, the, 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 the truth of God consists in this, knowledge of God, knowledge of self. And so if you don't know yourself, you will live as a fool. But to know yourself means not just to know your strengths, but also your weaknesses, not just to know your capabilities, but also to know your idolatries. And so a wise person is a person who is aware of their deepest rebellion within their heart and looks at it a lot, but is able to do so without fear. So what I do is I have like a five by seven card and on the top it says sin. And over the years, I've just sort of written down all my greatest sin struggles, all, my great, all the patterns of idolatry, and there are many. In fact, the card is all filled up. And from time to time, I take it out, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, and I just talk to God about it. I talk to the Father about it. I do it without fear because Jesus is my righteousness. I'm covered. I'm surrounded by the love of God. And I talk to him about what he's doing, how I see change. I long for change. I pray for change. Uh, and then I usually take one of the psalms of, of one of these psalms, and, and I just pray through it. And remember the love of God. So I think, I think you should do that. Second thing, um, find one or two people you can be honest with. You know, we have confession in our worship every week, which is very important because we must remember liturgically that we are a community of forgiven sinners. But that also, if you only do that, that, that lets you off the hook as a hypothetical sinner. So that can't be enough. It's also important to have someone, at least one person in your life, that you can be a real sinner with. And I mean a very real sinner, Right? James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. So I really believe in this, uh, that you would find one or two people that you can openly speak to who knows everything about your failings and sin and who can, as Bonhoeffer said, be the word of Christ to you, who can speak the word of grace to you and who can cheer you on in love. Now, can you, and, and let me just say this, if, if you have been provoked by something today and you, there is something burning, you know who you are, that there is something burning inside of you because you're hiding something and you're feeling something today, it's because the Holy Spirit is convicting you. And so I would just really challenge you to not let the sun set today without naming that to someone. Let me just say this. What would happen to our church? What would happen to any church if they were doing these two things? If people, everybody was living tra- a transparent life before God, constantly confessing sin, receiving mercy, and then living a transparent life before each other, confessing sin, receiving mercy, what would happen? What would happen to a community like that? Just two simple things. I'll tell you what would happen. The church would feel a lot less like a performance hall and more like a hospital. It would feel less like a place where people come to act and more like a, where, where people come to get healed. 
It would feel less like a country club and more like an AA meeting. There would be no line drawing. There'd be like, oh, those bad people out there and us good people in here. No, we are the guilty. The only thing that separates from anyone else is grace. And we would be those who just simply say to all, come on in, fellow beggars, into the place of rich grace where these two things can happen to you so that you might live a happy, blessed life. Here and here alone, in Jesus Christ, you can be fully known and you can be fully loved. This is the only place. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus is the only place where we can be both fully known and fully loved. There is no one without the other for a happy life. And I pray that we would, each person here would know Jesus in that way. And I pray that if there are any here today that don't know Jesus and they yearn for that, they they would ask for it from God today. All it takes is just saying, God, receive me. I name everything to you. Receive me because of Jesus. I want to be fully known. I want to be fully loved. And I pray that you would make our church like that too, that we would be a a place uh, that people are, are safe because they are fully known and fully loved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.